what we see and believe through narratives, through story, really actually influence what we believe off screen. And I think culture has to shift alongside with policy. And how do you, you shift culture? You shift it through storytelling. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a very special episode of the Empowered Women podcast in celebration of Hispanic Heritage Month. I'm Janelle Gardner, Senior Director of Talent here at WBD, and I'm incredibly excited about today's discussion centered around the topic of storytelling, inclusion, and tech. Today's conversation is hosted by our very own Somia Subramanian, EVP of Engineering here at WBD, and she will introduce our very special guest, Julian Cromet. Thanks, Janelle, and thanks everyone who's joining. I'm really excited for the dialogue and conversation today. And um, as Janelle said, I'm EVP of engineering at Warner Brother Discovery, and I lead our engineering efforts to build uh, the next generation streaming and uh, digital platform for all our content. Super excited to be hosting Julianne in conversation in this Empowered Women series. Julianne and I worked together for many years in Google. I think we drove many uh, innovative DEI initiatives, ranging from how women are portrayed in uh, computer science, in media, how they are represented on big screen with uh, Gina Davis Institute. We did a lot of interesting work. We also, um, you know, Julianne was spearheaded unconscious bias and unconscious bias training across the company. And now, after years later, Julianne Cromit is CEO of Collective Moxie. And previously, she was VP of Multicultural Audience Engagement at the Walt Disney Studios and contributor to many projects, including Encanto, Soul, Coco, Black Panther, Raya, The Last Dragon, and the critically acclaimed Disney Launchpad Shorts Incubator. So I've watched many of these. My kids have loved watching many of these. And I really love how the storytelling uh, brings to front um, so many different characters, demographics, and uh, messages that are very, very powerful. So Julianne, welcome. And I'm going to start off with one question, which is your background, your journey, your experience is so unique in many, many ways, because you're truly that combination of STEAM, uh, creative, artistic, media, technology, all together. So tell us a little bit about your journey and what got you here. Absolutely, Samya. I'm thrilled to be here today and also to be here with you specifically. Um, I feel like it's just a reunion and folks are going to get a a chance to hear how we talk on the phone (laughs) sometimes with each other. So hopefully that's what it feels like to all of you who have joined us. Um, and thank you for joining us on a Friday um, if uh, if you are stateside or in Europe and then perhaps seeing us on Saturday uh, if you're joining us from uh, APAC. So um, I'm Julianne Cromit. My uh, pronouns are she, her, ella. Um, I am a proud Puerto Rican and Cuban-American. I was born in San Juan, Puerto Rico, um, and raised outside of Atlanta, Georgia in the American South. Um, and so, um, you know, my background also intersects with being Lebanese and white British and many other things. So, um, you know, as I like to say, we are all multitudes. Um, and today I'm very proud because it's the last day of Hispanic Heritage Month or Latinx Heritage Month. And I have my proud Cuban roots t-shirt on for anybody who's watching or identifies. Um, and so, um, a little bit so me about my journey, which is like anybody's, I think a little bit all over the place in a way. And then when you look backward, it makes more sense. <laughs> so, Um, I'd say for me, the North Star that has centered my whole journey, and you and I have talked about this a lot, is that I believe that the images we see on screen affect our off-screen realities in very direct ways. What we believe about ourselves, what we believe about each other, what we believe about this world at a very fundamental level. And so storytelling to me is the most powerful tool at our disposal. And so when I think about my life journey and the work, and I think some some of the work you've been in as well... It's all about how can that reflection of what's on screen reflect our off-screen reality and more and the future that we want to say too. Um, And so from my earliest days, I'm a theater kid by background. Uh, So folks who grew up here doing theater, who love theater, uh, I see you. Um, And um, I had wonderful parents um, who were very encouraging 
of um, the arts in both my brother and me. Um, and I'm internally grateful to them for that. I know not everybody gets that kind of level of support sometimes um, when it comes to the arts. And I also, um, and some of you, you've heard me talk about this, my godfather who passed when, uh, away when I was very young, uh, very suddenly, um, was the first person who was sort of a quote unquote tech geek in our family. And so he exposed me at a very young age to the concept of like, what is a computer? Like, how does that tie into storytelling? Because he was an actor and a movie critic. And so when I think back, his impact on me um, personally um, has driven me to kind of see the intersections, if you will, for the rest of my life. When I got to college, I started producing theater after studying acting, and I started uh, the Latino Latinx Latine Theater Troupe at Harvard, which is still going to this day. Um, and I'm so proud of the students who have kept it alive, but it's also the first time I heard something, Sonia, that you and I have heard before, which is I got questioned on whether or not we could get enough people to audition for the show, and if people would come to a show that was centered on Latinx or Latine identity. And I was 20 years old and incredulous, and it was like, of course. And um, we ended up selling out by closing night, and we had half of the um, community, uh, uh, half the uh, cast and crew and the audience were from the Boston community, not from the school. And what it showed me is that you can't account for audiences you haven't been accounting for. And if you build it, they will come. And so when I also think on my whole journey, that's the other theme, which is who's not in the room, who's not at the table, and how can we be thinking about centering them, about bringing them into the conversation. Um, and so career-wise, folks can read about this as well, but very quickly, I, I've worked in animation, I've worked in unscripted television, I've worked in feature films, and I've worked in scripted episodic television. So I've worked across the board, short form, long form, um, started my career at Pixar, worked on Up and Wally, two wonderful films. Uh, Wally every day becomes more prescient about the environment. So everybody, please watch it and rewatch it. And then hello from Burbank, Ingrid. As I've continued on the journey, I ended up working at NBC Universal um, for five years, um, ran their behind the camera talent programs by the time I left, um, launched the careers of about 50 television writers and eight television directors, all from underrepresented backgrounds, who are mostly all still working in the industry today, including making many of the shows that we're watching. I worked at Google with you uh, in beautiful ways that you've outlined, but the additional work I also did is I worked in DEI in Latin America. Um, so I worked in Brazil, Argentina, Colombia, and Mexico for anybody who's joining us from that part of the world. And it really helped me decenter my Americanness in many ways and the way I think about DEI work, but also how I think about moving through the world. And then most recently at Disney, I uh, led all the efforts uh, to build diversity, equity, and inclusion at the Walt Disney Studios. And that was across our content on a lot of the titles uh, that you mentioned. Um, and by the way, somebody asked me the other day what my favorite title might be, don't tell the others, but Encanto sits in a very special place in my heart that I'm happy to talk about. And um, and also we looked at the people and culture side, right? You can't do one without the other. So how are we thinking about hiring, retention, culture change, and also quite frankly, the stories we were telling, who was telling them, how we were delivering them to an ever global and diverse audience. And then how are we involving communities and centering communities or the user, right? In the conversations we were having about storytelling, which I think actually segues really nicely into our conversation today. So that's a little bit about me. And now I'm an entrepreneur. <laughs> you know, and all these reasons are why you were 30 under 30, correct? Uh, yeah, 35 under 35. Yeah. Oh, 35 under 35. Okay. What a joy. What a journey. There were a few things that you mentioned. And Julianne and I were discussing before this session started. We do have some scripted questions, but probably are going to go off script quite a bit just because it's <laughs> yeah, like a conversation. Yeah. There were two things that there were many things that you said, but there are two that I'm going to pick on as our next kind of path to traverse. Uh, when you first entered theater and should you be making what kind of content and play that do you want to be making the mm. play about, the story about? And uh, similarly, I think um, uh, Encanto is, again, so unique because of the cultural relevance that is out there. Mm -hmm. The thing that that is fascinating to me is many times we think of stories that we tell to be about a specific audience group or a demographic. And maybe that's where the origin is, but it actually appeals to so many more people globally. And yeah. particularly in this world of streaming and online access to content, 
it's really a global storytelling with a local focus. So what are your thoughts on that? And in that context, what does inclusive storytelling really mean to you? Amazing. Get to the heart of the matter, uh, Sonia. You know, it's a great (laughs) question. Uh, Not surprisingly. Um, So I think, you know, a couple of things come to mind. Um, I think one of the things that you you really learn when you work in storytelling for a while, and those of us who have joined us today who work in storytelling the day to day, I think would relate to this deeply, which is that the more specific the story is, that the characters are well etched, that you know them as real people. They don't feel like archetypes, right, or stereotypes of any one type of person the more resonant they're gonna be with everybody because they feel more human and more real to something that you can kind of grab onto if you get my drift as an audience member, which is why the specific is universal. Um, And then if you try to water down that specificity, you actually end up appealing to nobody because there's nothing to grab onto. You've lost the magic that was centered in that character. Their complexity, is actually what makes them interesting and what makes it compelling as content, right? As storytelling. And so for me, that is, that's at the center of storytelling, period. And so when you think about the breadth and depths of stories that have not been told, right? That have not been centered in our media over time and the 7 billion people that exist in this world, my God, are the possibilities endless in terms of the specific stories that can and should be centered, not only because to your point, They're going to resonate with people who might see themselves quite literally in the story, right? But they're also going to resonate with people who are outside of any one cultural experience, right, or identity group, because there's something about that character that connects to them because they are centered in that specificity. So it's always a yes and equation, like this nonsense of like movies about Black people don't travel. This nonsense about, you know, something that's culturally specific somehow can't travel um, even though, you know, movies have been centered on white people have traveled forever and there hasn't been a question about that. And I just mean that because that's been the majority of things that have been made for a long time. I think we've now just proven that um, on multiple occasions, Black Panther probably being the most notable example. But I'd like to use another example um, from a Disney days that most people don't know um, to your question about specificity and translation, that local to global. Um, when we were working on Coco, there was this whole question of, you know, the specificity of Mexican culture and specifically Dia de los Muertos that was being explored in that film. And my team worked very closely with Pixar on that that movie. And one of the things we were talking about is how is this going to translate to people around the world? And many of us were saying, I actually think it will for a host of reasons, including the fact that it's about honoring one's elders, right? It's about honoring those who came before you. That's the heart of the holiday in many ways. And when we released the film to this day, It is the number one Pixar movie in China to this day. And it actually, I believe, did a higher box office. Now, don't quote me, but I believe it did a higher box office in China than even in the U.S. Um, And and that has to do, obviously, with the Chinese population being so large. But imagine that a movie centered on Mexican culture and very specifically Dia de los Muertos um, translated so beautifully into the Chinese market. And what we were hearing was that there is a holiday in China that mirrors Dia de los Muertos, which happens in the spring every year and is about honoring the ancestors. And people were connecting so much to the characters, to the family and to that celebration that they were coming back and coming back and coming back. And I love sharing that story because I think it just illustrates your question, Sonia, around when you make something specific, you're automatically making it in many ways universal to audiences everywhere. And that to me is like a, the clearest through line you could ever see is with Coco. So hopefully that answers a, a bit of your question and we can talk a little more about inclusive storytelling process in that. Yeah, and actually there's an audience question here. So I'm gonna just read it out. Mm-hmm. Creating Encanto, was it a natural choice to include Latina characters of deeper complexions? Often we are left out of stories. So it warmed my heart to see that representation. Elliot, can I just tell you, thank you for asking the million dollar question. I so appreciate you and I see you, mijo. So, you know, uh, lots of love uh, from a Latino standpoint. It was an entirely an intentional choice. And actually, I'm going to share a few anecdotes with you all. So Encanto is a movie that myself and my team worked on actually 
for all four years that I was at Disney because animated movies, as many of you might know, and Encanto and many animated movies you might know, take a while to make, right? The lead time is long on the feature side. So upwards of eight to nine years. Um, and the actual production of, its, of, of it in total takes at least three to four years. So um, we were on it very early. And the conversations we were having specifically with the writer, as well as with the directors was, um, Colombia in and of itself is an incredibly diverse country um, of, you know, for a host of reasons, including history, right? Um, the uh, history of colonialism, history of immigration and many other pieces. And we said, if we're gonna do this, we have to show in one family the you know complexity and the beauty of a singular family from Colombia because that's literally what it would look like. So it was authentic to that experience on top of the fact that we knew the responsibility we had to reflect the Latin A community in a way that was inclusive and intersectional. So a few things that were quite intentional that I'm sure, Emil, you probably noticed, which is that we had pretty much every skin uh, shade um, we had every skin shade pretty much imaginable uh, represented in the family and hair texture. Um, we very specifically dispersed that across both men and women to show across gender. Um, we didn't explore gender non-binary character, but spoiler alert, I think that's happening in a future film from the animation studio. But um, what um, the other thing I'll say too is that we very intentionally made um, the quote unquote perfect daughter uh, darker skinned so that she didn't code as white. So there wasn't this um, worshiping of a lighter skin daughter as the perfect one. Um, and then we also with consumer products made an entirely new process. And I have to hand it to the consumer products team. We made an entirely new process on how to calibrate skin tone on plastic and on t-shirts and other materials so that the skin tones would match from the screen to the product and nobody would be lightened, nothing crazy would happen with hair textures and other things. And so that process that formed because of Encanto, because sadly at Emil to your question and your point, it's the first time we had actually seen that diversity of skin tones represented in one movie or in one piece of content. It actually spurred this entirely new process for consumer products. And that is now the standard to this day. So there is now a Pantone color for every character, not only on their on-screen representation, but then additional Pantone colors that match for on plastic and on other materials. So that's something that's not really public, but I think is an incredible outcome from Encanto in addition to the representation itself. So Emil, thank you for asking about that and, and about Encanto. One of the things, Julianne, you went into here was, and I, I'm going to like shift our gears a little bit towards technology and the intersection of storytelling. You and I were, I think we spearheaded product inclusion in Google. Yes. Um, I still remember we were uh, both at this UN um, media representation conference uh, in Me Me Mexico, Mexico. It was in Mexico. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, it, there was an aha moment that, hey, like, yes, you are a platform, a democratic platform where anyone can express themselves. And still the rules of society seem to come in into the platform, into the technology. The biases come in as you train machine learning models, your test data, everything. And one of the things as we started digging into this product inclusion to make it resonate was places where technology actually is not inclusive including mm -hmm. like the Kodak color moment and the color oh, palettes, yeah. Yeah. which were developed for not dark skinned people. Correct. And representing anyone dark skin on screen was really, really hard. But mm -hmm. it really started to change when I think they were trying to uh, show different shades of brown for wood texture in commercials. And it started affecting the bottom line of how mm. they can promote the products. And that resulted in that color palette changing uh, and become, which then, you know, yeah. came into and helped media and, uh, and everything else too. Mm -hmm. So how do you see technology playing into this inclusive storytelling? And where do you see the opportunities are for us to do even better, even more? One thing to note, um, and it's something in, in working in animation, actually, just to follow up on your Kodak piece, and we see the real tone, um, you know, uh, piece coming from Google with their camera as well. Um, and we know in AI, 
by the way, that is not recognizing darker skin faces. It's a huge bias within AI as well. Coded bias is a great documentary for folks who haven't um, checked it out. Part of, of the issue too is that it spills over into storytelling in a very tangible way. And that is in animation and visual effects, lighting is actually programmed and designed off of the same flawed tone cards, basically. And so what happens is if you have folks with darker skin, character darker skin and animation, um, the lighting actually is not properly calibrated actually in the coding to um, properly calibrate to the skin. You actually have to actively go and fix that as part of what you do. This has now become very apparent to basically every animation studio and the changes have happened. But I just wanted to tie a thread there that there was actually a very direct connection to the anecdote you share and actually working in animation and the opportunity there with lighting, uh, which most people may not put two and two together on that. And so um, what you were happening is skin was like burning out, right? Or two in shade, depending, right? Um, and so um, that for me is such an exciting development of the kind of tidal wave that has happened uh, with that technical movement you brought up um, to make it more equitable. So I mean, particularly with lighting and skin tone. Um, and then I think there are many opportunities when we think about uh, sort of tech and inclusive storytelling. Um, I'll, I'll start with one um, that we worked on, Sonia, with Gina Davis Institute, which is incredibly practical. Uh, Gina Davis Institute uh, with the University of Southern California and some engineers from Google as well, um, essentially uh, designed um, and programmed an ability to be able to actually read um, and track uh, speaking time and face time for characters or screen time for characters within actual content, as well as within scripts themselves and to start to actually pick up on bias through an automated read actually of the script. This is a way in which technology can actually aid us in tracking and looking at biases and continuing to get better at that across all intersections and dimensions of identity. Um, for me, that's incredibly practical. And I wanted to highlight that here because it's such a tool that I think creative teams could use more not to determine necessarily the core creative of where you wanna take a story, but give you awareness of what is or is not playing out in the text. And you know, some of you we talked about earlier, even folks with the best of intentions are gonna fall prey to all of the systemic, right, stereotypes and tropes that we've all absorbed over time. Um, my favorite example is when Shonda Rhimes uh, realized that her background cast was only 17% female on Grey's Anatomy. And this is Shonda who is like dedicated <laughs> to representation. And that fact had slipped through her fingers and she only realized it because of Gina Davis. So I love that technology can help us, you know, even get sharper and better at recognizing where bias is slipping into creative processes. And then I think on the other side, an opportunity that, that lies before us is that when you think about streaming and the ways in which content is recommended to you, right? It's recommended on algorithm that's based on what you have previously watched. There's obviously inherent bias in that. And so my question is, is there an opportunity in which, you know, I'm just putting out here, Warner Brothers Discovery, that on your platform, you could actually recommend things to people that they would not watch or not find otherwise and bring it to the top of their consciousness. Um, I think about this often because um, it's kind of a spiral of, um, you know, of kind of never ending berry, if you will, within the platform or within the canon. If somebody is just keep getting fed suggestions of things that just fit the things they've watched before. And then that independent documentary that they probably might weirdly like, but they may just not know exists, could be brought forward. And so I think about the ways in which bias is playing in through suggestion and the ways in which we're consuming and prioritizing content, because that's actually a form of marketing when you think about yeah. it on these platforms and tech and marketing then in that in that way are inextricably linked. So how could we be thinking about that, I wonder? Yeah. Yeah, this is one of my favorite pet peeves and ideas of innovation. And actually we are working on it. I think it's really, really important to think about it of not just recommendations from an algorithm perspective, but it's really about a human machine combination of things, right? Yeah. There's a human element to identifying what are those interrelated and connected content that you can recommend to the user. And, and there's an algorithmic aspect to it where you can really get the machine learning to train and automate and improve. But it's that intersection of the two of the editorial voice with the machine yes. where you start 
shifting yourself away from the echo chamber, if you will, of I like this kind of content. So I'm going to keep getting more and more of this, which absolutely, if you look at it from a watch time and engagement perspective, is going to do great for the streaming platform. And there's an opportunity to actually continue to do great or even better if you diversify what you're giving to me, because you'll help me explore and learn there are more things I like. That's right? exactly and, right. And I think we see that in the brick and mortar world quite a bit. Mm-hmm. You go to a grocery store, right? Like I hate grocery shopping, but you always get distracted by things. And I think they methodically go in, I've heard, and change the inventory placement. Yes. So it's not predictable. And they interleave new things that they want you to start paying attention to. Correct. And 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 I think it's a question of how do we bring that into a technology streaming world and uh, in all this kind of scaled, automated recommendation that we're doing, one of the things definitely on the WBD side that we are doing, actually my teams are working on, is how do we grow the engagement per unit of content across your entire corpus? Mm. Because I think oftentimes everyone gets focused on that top 10% or 5% content that's doing really well and keeps feeding you more and more of that. Yes. The question is, if you raise the bar and the tide of engagement for all the catalog that you have, you in, in the process, you've increased that diversity of representation of types of content that you're feeding the user. I want to slightly shift in another direction where you had said, and, and hopefully these answer the two questions here from the audience. One is about the next big trend in storytelling through technology and how inclusion and diversity fit in. And mm-hmm. the other is if I'm a software engineer who really wants to do something in animation, even as a hobby, where do I get started? Weaving those two in, I think recommendations, data, you know, color, lighting, all of that, absolutely, that we've touched on. Is there more? Like, is there more we could be doing for content creators um, from a technology mm-hmm. point of view? Is there ways in which we could maybe automate and detect some of these, um, like the Shonda Rhimes example that you mentioned, right? Like, yeah. is there a way that I can be prompted even as I'm going through that creative process to notice some of these in a proactive way? I think about nudges. You know, we talk a lot about um, uh, Laszlo Bach, who used to run people operations for Google, some when we were there, has um, a, a startup, uh, Humu, in which their entire premise is that they do nudge work. And nudges are that you remind people in the moment while they're working on a particular tool about something they might be missing, right? Um, and you give them that nudge. Hey, remember, you know, or something like that. Very casual, very brief very short, the ways that we often receive feedback, quite frankly. And so I wonder in your positive about what kind of technological tools could be helping artists as well. And I saw another question in the chat come up about, um, you know, if I'm a storyteller, how can I be thinking about this? And we can touch about that in a little bit more in a second. But I think that one of the things uh, would be, you know, in Final Draft, for example, where most writers are writing their scripts, would there be an upper opportunity to actually build into the software this uh, notion of nudges, which is if certain keywords pop up that indicate that you might be talking about a particular type of person or culture or experience, right, that's actually able to understand the dramaturgy, if you will, of what's going on in the script and could nudge the writer to say, hey, have you considered this or point them to a resource? I feel like that could be incredibly helpful. And it's the kind of thing where, um, it could get somebody to think more deeply in, in the moment and or direct them to a resource to actually make the character deeper or richer. It'll actually help the creative process. Because my whole thing is it has to both combat bias and get underneath the stereotypes and tropes, but also enable the creative process in a better way. And I think you can do both of those things at the same time. And so if you could build it into the tools and software that artists were using on a daily basis to even give suggestions or provide toward resources, I think that could be a transformational tool in and of itself. Um, as I'm thinking aloud, instead of doing it just retroactively, right? Instead exactly. of just doing it yeah. once you have the script at the end, how could yeah, you be do doing it, it real time? Yeah, yeah, exactly. The other one, while we're riffing on ideas that uh, I think we could do, uh, and I don't know how like pie in the sky this idea is, but real, you know, many times we have things in the backdrop, uh, 
of the storytelling and the visualization itself. And, and yes, the specificity of the story, as you mentioned, is what results in more people than just that character relating to the story. In addition, what if some of the surrounding background pieces and elements, small accents, right? Like a Coke can that is in the back versus a Pepsi can or something else that is more local in that region. Like if you could swap in and out dynamically some of the props in that visual experience to Mm. make it a little more relatable to the audience and the segment that that is watching it, would that take away from the storytelling or would it add to the storytelling? And is there technology mm. that can help there? It's a great question. I also think it depends on the type of story you're telling too, right? Um, it's, it's a really interesting one. I also think about it in the context of where storytelling is going in many ways. So when you actually think about the actual technological journey that storytelling is going on, right? Which is that we have real-time rendering now we're in a space where, um, you know, literally like Mandalorian and Andor and all those yep. shows are being shot on a volume stage with green screen, basically, and, and props in place, um, where literally everything has actually been designed in the background. And so this idea of swapping things is actually quite realistic, <laughs> to be fair. And so, you know, your question, I think, is one that's a creative question that depends on the project and depends on the storyteller's vision and also what you're doing in terms of cultural representation within that project. And so I think there's a version where it's a yes and, where if you do that, you might be hitting audiences in different parts of the world and there's a connectivity point and it connects very organically to the story you're telling at the same time. And there's another version where the story is so specific that actually keeping the specific elements in matter to the story, right? So I, yeah. I think I, I think for me, it wouldn't be a hard and fast, but rather that's an interesting option when you think about what could enable storytellers to even do more or think even differently about the audience as part of their journey, right? In the, in the yeah. set pieces. That's where my mind went when you, when you, when you made yeah, this. Yeah, 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 that's great. Okay, so there was an engineer who wants to get into animation. Uh, I'll just answer it with one sentence and hand it off if Julian has favorite tools that she would recommend you use. I think there's quite a bit of software and cloud-based software out there today for you to get started if you want. Uh, Interestingly, I'm actually doing this session from a hotel room because I was here at an Adobe exec conference or summit, uh, what would they call it, uh, for the last two days. And Adobe has some really interesting tools themselves for animation and to get started. So, um, you know, look it up. There's a lot of resources out there. Um, I don't know if Julianne has something like her. Sure, absolutely. So a few things. I sit on the board of women animation and if you're in, in total transparency and I produce in the animation space. So you have asked the million dollar question yet again. Um, and I, I want to also acknowledge Parson. Thank you for correcting me that Andor was not shot on a volume. They did a lot of physical location shooting. So I just want to acknowledge that. Thank you for the correction. Mandalorian did shoot on volume. Um, and then Francis Ford Coppola's last movie is actually being entirely shot on a volume. So it's a really interesting what's going on and how people are choosing their preferences. So I want to say thank you to Parson for that. Um, So from an animation standpoint, okay, a few options. Adobe is a great place, actually, from a tools perspective, Sonia, for folks to start to get their feet wet, so to speak, or to start to actually dive into this world, right? Another opportunity um, is if um, you want to join the Women in Animation, I have to plug it. If you want to join the WIA network um, or Women in Animation network, uh, we are open um, to all gender identities, um, although we center on uh, women um, and non-binary folks, um, which includes trans women. Um, And so, um, but we have tons of members who are also identify as male. So um, we invite you to join um, and be a part of the change within animation. And also because we do tons of talkbacks around animation with leaders in the field, and that's both on the technological side as well as the artistic side. Um, we have a job board um, in which uh, jobs are posted um, by different uh, companies that are looking for different types of artists. Um, we also have a talent database um, that we share with employers as well, and we do mentorship circles. So it's a great way to plug into the animation community really organically, especially if you just want to learn more and be a part of it. Um, And then from a tools building perspective, the other resource beside Adobe that I would recommend is specifically Epic Games. 
Epic Games has open sourced um, uh, a lot of uh, their work and their material to be able to learn and build on for very specific reasons, including that it becomes more democratic um, uh, in, in terms of experimenting and playing in what we would call loosely the animation space, which extends to gaming and visual effects. So I highly recommend checking out what Epic Games is doing and engaging uh, with their platform and um, and with what they've been up to. So that those for me would be some really tangible uh, steps if folks want to get more involved in the animation space. Uh, what advice would you give to writers and artists working on projects that involve a culture or cultures that they're not directly a part of to make sure they're addressing setting characters and plot with accuracy and sensitivity? So a few things. One is if you are in an ability or have an ability um, to hire uh, people uh, onto the staff, whether that be as writers or in other key creative roles and, and or into the writer's room. Um, obviously, I'm a big proponent of voices being present, especially when something is centered on a particular uh, culture specifically um, or intersection of cultures and identities. Um, and in some cases, that is very core to the storytelling. And in some cases, it's a, it's a, a less um, sort of present aspect within the storytelling. So in terms of calibrating, I think you know, thinking about what voices should be at the table in key creative roles. If you do not sit in the place to make those hiring decisions, another thing you can do um, is start to access a ton of online resources as well as organizations that advocate for various communities you might be thinking about. So one is Storyline Partners has an incredible abundance of resources when it comes to writing specifically around particular communities and identities. And they go pretty specific on their site. So that is like a cornucopia of information at a very high level to even just start get you started. Um, secondly, um, you could engage um, certain organizations, again, that advocate for um, and or have expertise within different communities and identities. Um, you know, that could be anybody from GLAAD um, on the LGBTQ plus um, front to um, the NAACP. I've engaged on different occasions um, to um, uh, Prospero Latino. It's an amazing uh, Latinx Latina consultancy firm out of Miami and DC. But there are wonderful organizations, um, you know, NALIP, um, that center on uh, different intersections of community. In the disability space specifically, I want to highlight because a lot of people, this is a huge gap and we're trying to increase disability representation behind the camera. Uh, respectability um, has great resources around writing around disability across different areas of disability, um, including visible and non-visible. So that's another great resource and they're always available um, to help and connect you with folks to be a part of the project. And then thirdly, the last thing I would say is, if it's something that really centers around a particular community or identity, it behooves you, and I mean this on like multiple levels, to create some sort of community council or entity that is an intersection of all the different identities that might exist within the ones you're exploring in the story to have really good, tough conversations, uh, particularly because as we all know, no community is a monolith. And so you ask, for example, five different Cubans about being Cuban, you're gonna have five different answers, right? And so um, when you create that kind of forum and ongoing discussion um, for interaction with the content, what's really interesting is you get sort of a user-based design framework because you're actually hearing from the centered and most affected uh, group, essentially, to your storytelling, giving you feedback in real time. Secondly, the other thing is that you're going to get that cornucopia of opinions and of perspectives. Um, they're going to help inform the decisions you make culturally in the script that connect to the creative. Um, because at this, you know, you're probably going to get four out of five people maybe in the group who agree on going that particular direction, but you'll know why you went that particular direction. Part of the problem when is that we make assumptions all the time. And in making assumptions, we actually revert back to stereotype or trope. So it's really important that you explore all the areas in which you might be able to take a story or talk about and through with community members and then make a decision that's best for the story, but that you know that you're doing right, not only by the community, but you know why. And I think that for me is the biggest takeaway in learning when you think about inclusive storytelling processes in general, is you have to understand the why, the intention, the reason behind the creative choices you're making, as opposed to just going with the default. So hopefully those are sort of three really tangible ways to think about engaging from a writing standpoint. 
we all are employees, we are leaders, we are um, either CEO of like your own company or you know an employee at someone else's company. Regardless, I think we all have our part to play in making the culture more inclusive. And I think for me, always it has been important. It's not just about an inclusive culture for the sake of an inclusive culture. It actually affects how you think about engineering, think about product mm-hmm. design, think about marketing, everything, right? I think right. it affects the bottom line, actually. Correct. Uh, and, uh, and meaningfully. So what are your tips and tricks for how to navigate holding leadership accountable to the values of diversity and integrating it into technology without risking one's employment? One I would say is I operate from the premise, and I think you do too, Somia, that this is the only way in which to operate a business is to think inclusively and to actually re-examine and change your systems, right? Because actually what we're talking about at the end of the day is within organizations, what we have to do is actually change the systems in which we operate. And part of that is really not sexy. (laughs) The other part of that is we actually have to map them and understand them and call things sort of out loud. And that's part of the accountability process. And it's not meant to be a scary thing. It's more like we have to actually understand where we sit today. And so to me, one of the first steps, and and I think it's actually quite healthy as well as um, I don't think it's actually gets people totally like riled or anything is that I think you have to look at, in the case of storytelling, we'll use an example, your storytelling processes end to end and actually map those out. Like, how do you source ideas? Where do you source people from when you think about hiring creatives, right? When you think about hiring crew, um, when you think about where you shoot, right? Um, All of the different sort of aspects that one might think about in a creative process all the way through distribution and marketing. It's really this sort of operational exercise. So when I think when you look at it that way, for me, it starts to take it from a place of where we're sitting in emotion, which is very real because you know, there has been such marginalization, right? And um, such structural destruction for so long, but we have to go into a place of, okay, what are the systems we want to build that are different? And so for me, I start to operate from that place because I start to present it as logic, like within, okay, if we want to get X, Y, or Z outcome, then we have to do X, Y, or Z at the beginning. And when you start framing it like that, then you can start to connect it to those really tangible outcomes, Sobia, that folks in business care about, which is dollars, right? Markets and money. And that to me is not risking your career in the slightest. That is that you are maximizing for the company. And if you are in an organization or with a manager that does not appreciate that exercise or want to do that exercise, then I say, well, then maybe you're in the wrong organization or working with the wrong manager. Maybe it's about going to another part of the organization or a different one where you can continue to move that conversation forward. Because honestly, any company that doesn't do this is going to get disrupted. That's just what's going to happen. And they're going to end up basically phasing out of the market at some point. So for me, this is also a survival mechanism for any company today. There is no way you're actually going to survive unless you actually do this at a very fundamental level, because the world is 7 billion people and incredibly diverse. And if we're not getting hip to what all the data is telling us, somebody else is. And that's where we're going to end up going, you know, and we're ripe for it. I'm just being honest with you. The entertainment industry is ripe for it right now for that disruption. So that would be my advice, which is take a look at it really practically integrate it into a plan that actually connects to your part of the business, whatever that is. And if you're not getting that support, right, or you can't drum up that support, then think about where else you could take it to then move it forward. Because at the end of the day, you are absolutely doing the right thing for the organization, as well as for moving DEI forward. I hope that's helpful. That's where I was trying to to go with it. A few things I would add to it, right? I think the more you can make it about the data, about the user, and are able to actually show the connection and the tie-in for what is it that it's the what, why, and how, right? Like what is it that you're trying to, is motivating the your idea and the pitch that you're providing? How is it gonna get measured in terms of the impact it's driving? And why then is it important to make that happen? I think if that that what, how, the how, the what, how, why, or how, what, why, framework, I think really helps the why, what, how. 
uh, I think really helps many times take the emotion out of the discussion that sometimes is there. And, and I think you, you use the word getting riled up and it is emotional. It can be emotional. Nobody is denying it. Um, but I think it is in, um, in any environment, uh, I think it's, it's easier when you bring it back to why are we really talking about this? Yeah. And why, why, why does it matter? Right. And yes. what is it that it's going to achieve if we did take these few steps? Yes. And and I think sometimes it's tricky to tie it always back to data. And that can be a little frustrating, right? And it's true with any idea, not just a DEI initiative, but a new idea you're pitching, any new idea you're pitching or a story you're pitching, sometimes you're going on gut and instinct and you don't have all the data just yet. The question is, how do you rally support around it and build your own conviction in it yeah. So that it becomes our idea, not my idea. I think that's very, very powerful. And yes. that in turn helps the collective to start holding leadership accountable and, and bring about a very meaningful change um, for the whole company and the organization, to your point. I agree. Um, and so I'll just add something to that because I think you're absolutely spot on. And part of the advice I've given people who are junior in their career, meaning or they're earlier in their career or in that particular area. Um, and something when folks have struggled to move um, a suggestion or a change forward, the thing I always say is, who is somebody who has more power in that room than you do, but that you have a relationship with? Go talk to them offsides. And to your point, Samia, get them bought into the same idea and then back each other up. That is what this is about at the end of the day, because to your point, it's harder to ignore five people saying something is a really good idea than one person. Um, and by the way, anytime I've advised somebody to do that, they've had success in moving it through. Um, it's just human nature in many ways and also fighting those power imbalances, right? Yeah, it's not it, change is not going to happen overnight. I, I would I just want to remind people of that. Right. It's a long it, it, it sometimes takes time and. Uh, and, uh, but someone once advised me, which is if you believe in the idea and if you think it's the right idea to do, keep repeating it because eventually somebody is going to show up who will understand it and will start sponsoring you and make it happen. You yes. know, I think in celebrating diversity and celebrating inclusion, we, we see a lot more of that happening in recent years. Right. We started with like Women's History Month, International Women's Day. There's the Hispanic Heritage Month. There is, uh, you know, the different demographics, different things. I think it's great that we're doing that. I also believe every day you should be celebrating the diversity around you. A thousand I think percent. It's, that it's bringing a spotlight to it on one day or one week or one month. At the same time, I think we need to own it every single day of the year. So thoughts on that and how do we get to a place where we are celebrating it every day? That's a great, oh man, another million dollar question, somebody, but from you. Uh, so what I would say is this, I totally agree with you. My running joke this whole month, as it always is, is like, yeah, but I am also letting you around as it turns out. Um, and I think part of it is we have to celebrate and uplift because we traditionally have not, right? Like the history of the achievements um, you know, of all different kinds of people who have been historically marginalized, right, or um, or sort of pushed down, if you will, in, in the narrative. And I think, you know, part of it is, yes, uplifting, but to your point, that year-round conversation, and part of, part of that, to me, actually centers right back on where we began this conversation, which is around storytelling. Um, you know, I started in, in chatting with you about, in my career, where has the center been, right? What's the North Star, if you will? And, and again, it's that what we see and believe through narratives, through story, really actually influence what we believe off screen. And I think culture has to shift alongside with policy. And how do you, you shift culture? You shift it through storytelling, quite frankly, and presenting counter narratives and narratives that show each of us and, and who we are and our backgrounds and the places where we hail with more complexity, with more intersection, with more realism in a way to the world we actually live in. And I think the more that um, those of us who have been historically marginalized or excluded are sitting in key creative roles and actually driving storytelling and thinking just because it's part of our lived experience, hand in hand with those who have been 
uh, traditionally centered in the majority, right, which is traditionally straight cis white guys, I think it's about going hand in hand and saying, okay, what are all the breasts and complexities and beauty of the stories? And as we do that, culture will change over time. It will generationally and policy will follow that culture. Often culture leads policy. We know that. And so to me, it's those things hand in hand that will actually start to make the structural changes we want, but we have to start with the actual storytelling itself. So for me, that's the goal so that we can start to see all of the other pieces uh, come together and actually design that new future that we're looking yeah. for. That's a beautiful way to bring it all back together. And policy follows culture, brilliantly said. What are some important themes we can expect soon on the screens? So great question. I think some things that I've seen trending, and I'll say this both, I'll say what's on screen and also from a business standpoint. I think on screen, I think the things that we will see trending are um, uh, specifically more stories. Um, I think we're going to see more and more stories centered around uh, when the United States, we say people of color, but Black, Indigenous, um, Latinx, AAPI, um, all kinds of, you know, in terms of races and ethnicities and cultures and intersections between. I think we're going to start to see a lot more intersectional storytelling. And what I mean by that is um, that we're going to see more intersections with gender, with sexuality, with disability. I think we're going to see a lot more stories coming out soon. Um, I, you know, I know for a fact, but I also know that um, in the sort of zeitgeist, if you will, uh, around disability and specifically um, connected, I think, to a really profound conversation around mental health. I think we're going to see mental health portrayed in different ways than we traditionally have. Um, usually it is villainized. Um, and I think we're going to start to see that shift. And we already have started to see inklings of that. So for me, those are some of the themes that I'm, I think are going to start popping up is around, you know, sort of who we are at a base level and deconstructing some of those sort of stereotypes and tropes that we've been living with for a while. I think that the one around mental health is so critical, given that we are in a mental health crisis globally. There is absolutely no doubt about that, particularly with young people. That's another panel for another day. I think on the other side, from a business standpoint, we're going to see a lot of conversations around IP ownership um, for creators. I think um, we are moving into a space of new business models in the industry as a whole. I don't think um, creators are feeling like they have equitable um, stake sometimes in these new models. And we're going to have a whole, um, I think, conversation and sea change over the next decade around IP ownership, particularly when it comes um, to creators. And I think really specifically creators of color. So that's um, those are my, my two guesses on, on the things that are coming. Thanks again for joining us. We really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. If you did, please rate and review this podcast, which will help other women in our industry to find this content. And of course, like, share and subscribe for more. And for careers in this space, check us out at wbd.com careers.